Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guest this week, Jason Hardrath, should be no stranger to Off the Couch listeners. We first had Jason on back in March before the release of his film, Journey to 100, which chronicles his 100th FKT attempt on the Bulgers list, the 100 highest peaks in the state of Washington. Since we last spoke, Jason spent much of his summer break from teaching, touring the film around the country. But that hasn't stopped him from continuing to set some pretty mind-blowing FKTs in the Sierra. So I had him back on the show to catch me up on how the tour's going and what he's been up to lately. Just a heads up, this conversation skips most of Jason's background, which we covered pretty extensively in our first interview with him earlier this year. So if you're interested in learning more about what makes him tick, head over to the show notes for a link to that episode. All right, and before I bring Jason on, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all of the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Also, if you've been enjoying the conversations I've been having on this show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the podcast. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Jason. Jason, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be back. Uh, yeah, we, we left off just, I think if I remember it, just before the release of Journey to 100. Yeah, so, I was back in back in March. Awesome. So yeah, we're kind of on the other end of that big wild storm now. That was, oh man, what a what a thing to go through. It's, it's weird. <laughs> it's yeah. so weird. I'm still processing it. No, I, I want to <laughs> talk about that um, for sure. And I, I think that like we kind of dug into your background and like what made you tick and uh, your first appearance on the show. So I think um, at the risk of retreading old topics, we'll probably skip most of the bio stuff today and kind of just get into the film and and what you've been up to. So, yeah, I thought that would be a great starting point is to talk about uh, Journey to 100, which you've spent the entire summer touring. I'm curious what the reception has been to the film and, and what it's been like to to, uh, yeah, travel around the country. Um, I had the privilege of, of seeing it in in the Bay Area when you stopped by. And uh, I think a lot of the themes and it really stuck with me and, and, and motivated me throughout my own summer adventures. So um, I'm excited to, to chat with you about it. Oh, man, that puts a huge smile on my face. Yeah, g- getting to have that San Francisco showing and, and that parts of it resonated with you. Um, the last thing I wanted it to be is just a, a film that came off as like some guys brag about how cool he is and what he did in the mountains. And the... Luckily, I was able to speak well enough and the the creative team, the amazing creative team around me was able to uh, edit it well enough and put it together well enough that uh, I really think it tells a message of, uh, especially for young people, a message of empowerment, a message of that you can take aim at whatever big goals along the lines of what you love in the world and what you want to create and contribute in the world. And it delivers that in a, in a package that both tells the story of climbing Washington's hundred tallest peaks in 50 days and getting a hundred FKTs, but, but also speaks to something more to the human condition. And uh, that's what I hope for. And in any continuing stories I, I aim at telling, like it always, I always want it to connect with the, 
the bigger part of humanity that we all share together, this search for meaning, if you will. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it definitely did that. And I think um, we should probably talk a little bit about like the premise of the film briefly um, to those that might not have had a chance to see it yet. How did the project come about and walk me through maybe some some brief highlights from it? Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, the the really quick people can tune into the previous episode if they want to want to go deeper into the whole journey to 100 FKTs. But the short version is, yeah, I, I, I had this car accident. And coming back from it, I started hiking and linking mountains together. And when the knee recovered, I started running between mountains and had built these technical climbing skills. And I just discovered FKTs one day when I was already out doing it like every weekend. And I'm like, I should do 100 of these. And it was just this idea, like, I, I knew so little about it. And I knew so like, I was so new to the community. I was like, super scared that I was gonna step on people's toes. But I was like, man, this is going to be a hundred memories of doing exactly what I love doing. For some reason, you know, I'm the the kid that for no good reason liked to actually try really, really hard in the PE mile. You know, it's like, who does that? But I'm one of those people wired that way. And so I love to express myself by bringing my very best, going all in on the experience, being my most efficient and going as hard as possible. And so it was like, oh, this is perfect for me. Like, let's do a hundred of these. And so that set the stage for for what became the title of the film, Journey to 100. And I kind of eventually started referring to it as my Journey to 100 FKTs. Obviously, much further along, it would have been really silly to call it that when I was like 10 FKTs in. But yeah, that set the premise for the film. And then when people started asking what I was going to do for number 100, I'm a I'm a school teacher for those, again, that didn't listen to the previous episode. I really recommend people bounce back to that and and give that a review. We go deep on some subjects of my car accident and we go deep on some subjects of being a teacher and things like that. But the, the short version is, I think like a teacher because I've been one for over a decade. And so what do you want to do on the, the big finale? Well, it's big final exam. Let's test everything that's been tested in every previous FKT. <laughs> Um, And that led to me choosing the Washington Bulgers list, which had never been completed in a season. Uh, If you're really generous with your definition of a trail, uh, four of the peaks have a trail to the top. Most people say two have a trail to the top. And every other peak is bushwhacking, rock climbing, glacier travel, um, off-trail terrain, route finding, all of the above. Um... And yeah, it had never been done in a single season. And so it was like bringing something new, reaching into the chaos and the unknown and bringing something new and uh, had the wonderful opportunity to, with the help of Athletic Brewing and, and the creative team that I shouted out earlier, sort of bring that whole story to bear along with my life as a teacher and what it means in the context of passing something on to young people. Yeah. And so that, that came together into, into a really rad 30 minute film, um, Journey to 100. So that's kind of where we left off. And I'm I'm curious, what was the the process of like touring the film like? Like what has that been like for you? What are some kind of memorable moments from it along the way? Uh, let's see here. Uh the quick thirty thousand foot flyover uh toured in New York, Denver, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. Uh obviously showed it a couple of times here in Klamath Falls where I'm a teacher. Um, both to, they bust students from different schools in for one of them and then the general uh, public for another. And then some other smaller places like Bend and and a few others. Um, I've done some showings and and I always like to do a live talk and a a, um, 
really the Q&A is what I love the most, where it gets to be this real interaction with the people there, um, where they sort of open up about what they're curious about. And you can always tell, like people, when they see a film like this, they, they aren't just asking questions about the effort itself. They're asking questions about like, well, what does this mean to me? And being able to have an opportunity to speak into, I, I call it the space where people's dreams live. Being invited into that space to, to help people redefine what they think is possible for them has been such a phenomenal experience. Um, I can think of just different questions people have asked and, and especially conversations with kids at the events uh, where they'll come up afterwards, even after the Q&A is done and just like chat with me as I'm like getting off stage and I'll sit down and have a five or a 10 minute chat with them about this or that. Um, yeah, those, those are my fondest memories. Uh, for sure. Has your, I guess, relationship changed with the project now that you've seen the movie so many times and like talked about it so frequently? I'm sure it's influenced me in some ways. Um, obviously, I've had to talk a lot about sort of the, you know, you, you end up answering the same questions a lot because a lot of people have the same general curiosities. Well, what did you eat? And right. uh, what was the hardest part? And what was the worst peak, best peak? Um, did you feel like giving up? Uh, so people, people ask all of those questions pretty often. And I try to, I always try to bring something different to bear instead of just repeating. Cause obviously with 50 days climbing a hundred mountains, there are so many different memories and I don't want to like forget a bunch of them, forget like six of them because I think, well, this one's the best one. It's like, well, I'll tell that one on occasion, but then also I'll recall these six or seven others. Um, and occasionally choose that one to, to tell a story with. And yeah, I think. I've been reflecting on this, like, have I forgotten portions of the trip now that haven't been rehearsed as frequently? Um, and it, it, does it bias my own memory to my own grand adventure? Um, it's a, it's an interesting question. It's really different having a film out that depicts you as a person versus just being in it yourself. Um, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird sort of semi out of body experience, I guess. <laughs> I asked that question because I've repeated this so many times on this show, but like in 2018, I hiked the PCT, get it over with. Uh, I My memory of that time is like oddly more vivid than like anything else in my life. Like if I now, if I go and hike any section of the PCT, I immediately like can recollect like where I was uh, in 2018 when I through hiked it. And I'm wondering if you kind of like have that same kind of strength of memory with with your journey to 100 project like what about like why why is that you know like why are why are those memories so like vital oh man um i think this comes down to the very like very core first principles of like what we're aiming at as human beings i mean we're all seeking some sense of meaning we're all seeking some sense of orientation in this confusing universe this confusing reality we exist in and and one of the ways we do that best for ourselves is taking aim at big goals, like big, difficult, meaningful goals, purposeful goals, I guess is a better better word for it. And the sense of meaning comes from seeing progress toward that goal. At least that's how I seem to understand the, the machinery of it. And so when we're in process toward some grand question mark, some grand experiment, our grand adventure for our own life, of course everything is turned up to 11 compared to when we're sitting on the computer typing away yet another forgettable email to yet another relatively unimportant like conversation to the grand scheme of our life. It's like 
no, like every step, every pain, every snack, every, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a place to refill my water. Like all of those details are just so painstakingly real when you're out there in it. Um, and yeah, no, like for me, you know, even with the perhaps, you know, bias that I can question from the film in my own memories, uh, it causing bias in my own memories. Like if you show me a map of the peaks, if you show me GPX files of, of different routes on the peaks, I can be like, oh yeah, on this day, this, this, and that happened. And on that day, da, 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 da. And somebody will like send a photo of my name on a summit register. And it's like, oh yeah, on that summit that day, I took this tumble and you know, almost got hit by a rock and da, 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 da. Um, so it's like all those details are just sort of like spatially stored in whether I, it's spatially on a map or like if I were to go visit the place, I'm sure it would be even stronger. Yeah, it's like those things when we're in the middle of our grand endeavor, like those are defining anchoring memories that for the rest of our lives, we use, we, we call upon and recall to, I think, perhaps make decisions for the rest of our lives on on what the parameters of possibility are for, for, for us as a human being. Um, so yeah, I think that also answers the question of like, well, is it important? Does it mean anything? It's like, well, yeah, I think it, in a very real sense, redefines your own perceptions of yourself because those are the memories of you you call upon for the rest of your life. Totally. And I think there's just something about like the simplicity of that lifestyle of like taking on these huge oh, projects yeah. too, where it's like, you know, all I have to think about is like tagging X, Y, and Z peak or like literally for me walking north. Like my my life revolved around like how quickly I could walk a single like cardinal direction. And like, I think it, to me, it like revealed like how, how flawed like the rest of life is, you know, like when, as you said, when you're just like typing away on your computer aimlessly. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't want to kind of wax too nostalgic with you here because I know um, you've been up to some really interesting things uh, this summer that I want to get to, but uh, I don't know. I couldn't help myself from, from asking you about that. Cause I feel like we share that kind of, kind of experience. So yeah, let's, let's get into it. What have you been up to since we last spoke? I know you are still setting FKTs and there's three of them that I kind of wanted to dial in on uh, Norman's 13, California, your California 14ers attempt and uh, convoluted bliss. Awesome. Yeah, no, those are three. I would love to talk about those. Um, I'm, I'm happy you did your homework there. Uh, which one do you want to start with? Why don't we start chronologically? All right, chronologically. So uh, convoluted bliss, it's uh, this high traverse uh, on the Merced River drainage up above Tuolumne Meadow, uh, the, all the water that flows down through uh, through Yosemite starts up there um and it's 41 miles of ridge traversing uh and then you obviously have the entry and exit comes out to about 71 miles total yeah i think i did my math right there it's only ever been it well previously it had only ever been completed by one team uh and not without multiple tries and they took eight days just under eight days to complete it to do uh you know what some would call the first ascent of of this ridge traverse and it's not like super technical ridge traversing it's a lot of like second third fourth class a couple of fifth class spots but you're up high for a long time and it's it's pretty beautiful and it's amazing to see the whole thing like laying out in front of you and you're like oh my gosh i'm going to walk along that jagged thing and climb along that jagged thing all the way over there till it tapers off into you know into the horizon but i guess to to rewind a little bit and 
I mean, I feel like in a way this is, you know, life is so cyclical because a huge portion of the message of Journey to 100 is I face this huge setback in life and and had to mentally rearrange myself and reestablish my own sense of confidence in myself and rebuild strength and, and all these different steps. And obviously that was a much more catastrophic thing, but, but I, I got to replay it again because in May, as school was letting out, I was training up on my bike because another FKT I want to do is the Badwater to Whitney duathlon FKT. So now people know I'm a, what, one of the things I'm still aiming at. The roads got washed out this year in Death Valley from the flooding. Dang it, global warming. Um, or climate change, I guess it's, I should say. But uh, I was training up to get some miles for that. Um, and also for the, obviously, the human-powered California 14ers. And I'm descending the side of Mount Shasta. I'm 98.5 miles in. To a training ride, like literally just have to coast down the side of Mount Shasta into, into Shasta. And my girlfriend's going to meet me there and we're going to like have dinner and it's going to be like a successful training day. I mean, I'd felt pretty terrible for the whole ride and I'll get more into that in a second. But, uh, out of the blue, I like lower my head to stretch my neck out. You know, when you've been on the bike for a long time, you take that second to just like look at the ground and look back up and two deer, three deer are crossing in front of me. And out of the corner of my eye, I see one coming right for me and I'm doing about 41 miles an hour and it drills me in the side, sends me sideways in the air. Uh, when the tires hit the ground, I get slingshot just right off the bike, over the bars, over the side of the bike and go sliding down, skittering down the road at 41 miles an hour. Somehow didn't break any bones, lost a ton of skin, put a huge contusion that uh, caused a seroma a big fluid pocket under the skin deep inside my hip um, and gave myself a concussion. And then, you know, I mentioned feeling pretty crappy during my ride, um, tested positive for COVID as well. So COVID concussion, deer, massive skin loss, um, hit, hit by the deer. Yeah. Uh, luckily the bike was okay. Right. The real thing that matters, the bicycle somehow was fine. Um, still ride it. Now, um, I didn't even have to like replace bar tape or anything. It's really? crazy. Yeah. Somehow I saved that bike. So yeah. Anyways, that really sucked. And I mean, obviously it rattled, it rattled my whole concept. Like are any of these goals I have for the summer still going to be possible? Is, did I just punch my ticket on my whole summer? Which as a teacher, one of the things, one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I've chosen to be a teacher is I'm kind of this free spirit, adventure minded person. and to lose the potential to go do that for an entire summer, my biggest break, that was kind of rattling. And so fast forward back up to convoluted bliss, I was coming out of this shaky space. Like, can I even trust myself in the backcountry? Like I've got some of these long COVID symptoms. I've got concussion symptoms where my motivation just like, and mood will just like taper off suddenly. I've got this, this obviously this fluid in my hip still, and my skin is half scar tissue is this, can I actually go into the back country like this? And luckily I rallied two guys, really strong guys. Uh, Vitali, he's a well-known, I can't pronounce his last name. Otherwise I would. Um, and hopefully he'll listen to this and make fun of me, but he's a famous first ascensionist in the Sierra. Um, just has put up more routes than any other human being ever. Um, literally has uh, two or three guidebooks coming out. Uh, first one's out, I think already. He says, heck yeah, I would love to do, love to do an adventure with you. And then uh, another guy that's well known for his kind of enduro efforts in the Sierra is uh, Ryan Tates. 
And so the two of them, you know, I'm like, all right, guys, so I'm coming into this shaky. Like we might not be going crazy hard. The goal is to try to half the time. Let's do it in four days or, or better. And like, just kind of have fun together and like, let me be forgiving to my body if it's, if I struggle. And they're like, that's cool with us. Like, this will be rad. Let's go have some fun. So we get out there on convoluted bliss and we have a blast. And yeah, my fitness isn't where I want it to be. My body hurts. The, the motivation head game is really weird and difficult. And I don't feel like myself, but we send it in like three days, 12 hours, set the new FKT, have an amazing, beautiful experience out there. Uh, Vitaly on his uh, YouTube, uh, he put out a convoluted bliss film. So people, if they want to go see some of the terrain we were moving on and some of the fun we had, they can go, go watch that on his YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, just a beautiful experience. You know, you could call it semi-technical ridge traversing. Um, if someone else wants to go have a vision quest on it, um, we definitely think it could go under the three day mark pretty handily, you know, but we were, we were out there with our own goals so that the next person can bring their own goals to it. But yeah, that was project number one and, and came away from, from it with exactly what I wanted. It was like, can I still do this stuff this summer? And the answer was, it's going to hurt. It's going to be way more difficult. You're not going to be as fast, but yes. And then that segues, I guess I can jump right into, uh, Norman's and, uh, the California 14ers. I have just a couple questions about uh, convoluted bliss. First is it, it is like, is it the same kind of technicality as like the whirl in Utah? I feel like uh, a lot of listeners might be more familiar with that route. That's a, that's a really great comparison. Um, the whirl has a lot more miles of friendlier, faster moving terrain than the 41 miles that you're up on the actual ridge. Obviously the trail miles are pretty cruiser in and out. Um, but it's a little, it, well, it's a lot more committing, right? Cause the world you're minutes away from an exit right? Uh, uh, pretty often where it's like, Oh, it's a mile down. And then I'm to the trailhead. When you step foot onto the ridge, you're 20 miles away. Um, you know, at the closest you're nine miles away. And at the furthest you're like, uh, I think, 30 miles to hike out if you want to bail. Um, so it's like very much the opposite experience where you're very committed as you do this ridge traverse. But as far as like maximum difficulty, I think the hardest moves I faced on the world, cause I also did the world same year, um, later the summer, maximum difficulty, pretty similar, maybe a few harder moves on convoluted bliss, uh, but not much harder. They're same ballpark. Gotcha. Um, just a little more sustained difficulty with some sections of convoluted bliss. You're also at altitude. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, a question about how you kind of uh, choose your adventure partners and like what kind of vetting process uh, you go through with that. Because I know that like that's a super important part of, of going out into the backcountry with people is like knowing that you can trust them. Um, I mean, it sounds like the two guys you went with are, you know, uh, very accomplished in their own right. But I'm wondering um, how you think about that. That's a great question. Um, I think Simon Sinek says it a really great way when he talks about how high-performing teams are chosen with the like the Navy SEALs particularly he studied. Um, you're always looking at this sort of quadrant graph. Um, you know, you draw the X and Y axis and you've got the four quadrants. Um, you're always looking at trust and performance. And to me, and, just, and he says the same thing, I would rather have a higher trust, lower performing person. And obviously, right, I'm choosing from people with a big resume of experience. I'm not, I'm not picking like, 
oh yeah, you've you've run on a trail for three miles once in your life. Like, come on, let's go out into the backcountry. Um, I'm not choosing from from beginners. I'm choosing from pretty expert, pretty experienced people. But among that, I would rather have a person that doesn't have quite the same resume, that doesn't have quite the same experience, that has a high level of trust, has a personality that I can jive with and jam with, that has a headspace that says, I'm all in and I'm like, if stuff starts to go wrong for me, I'm still going to do everything I can for the team and the vision to be seen through. Um, instead of like, if it starts to go sideways for me, screw the rest of you guys, I'm out. Like that's, I look for those sorts of traits and qualities. Um, someone that has themselves put together well enough that they can be there for more than just themselves. Um, and then obviously I try to be that for, for other people. And actually this summer, one of the cooler stories of the summer was a couple of situations where exactly that got to play out both with a partner to me, um, when we get into Norman's and then if we chat a bit more about what happened in the, on the world, me for my partner in that endeavor. Yeah. I think trust, trust to me in a, in a deep, not just like, would I trust him holding the rope, you know, while I climb a pitch kind of trust, but like the, can I trust them to be a person who's in it for the right reasons the whole time through, even when we're both sleep deprived and one of us is vomiting and it sucks. <laughs> um, which is a, you know, a different kind of trust for sure. All right, let's move into Norman's 13. Cause that is a project that I remember hearing like Andy talk about, uh, when he kind of came up with it, uh, a handful of years ago. And it's something that I didn't think I was going to see done. Uh, but then you come along and absolutely crush it. So why don't, why don't you set that up for us? Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's definitely sh- shout out Andy first. Uh, he, class act guy. Like he thought up this cool idea. He's given it some tries himself. Um, obviously there's emotions with that, right? Like you gave a thing a try and you never quite got to bring your, your dream project together, but yet he still manages to discover that I'm going to go for it and reaches out to me through social media and gives me kind of the like, go for it, man. Good luck. Like hope to see you do this. Um, so definitely a big shout out to him for just being an awesome, awesome all around guy and for thinking this project up definitely appreciate this contribution. I, and I think it's every bit deserving that it early on got compared to, to Nolan's California's equivalent of, of Nolan's 14. It's, you know, people ask like, Oh yeah, which one's more competitive? Well, yeah, Nolan's has obviously been competed on more, but which one's harder? Absolutely. Norman's like not even arguable. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely a test piece. It's a test piece that probably goes more to the mountaineer than to the runner. And obviously the person that can bring both to the, to the table is going to do the best on it. Um, but it's without a ton of experience on fifth class terrain and route finding and dealing with unstable terrain for miles and miles and having that be okay with your headspace. Uh, a person with a huge amount of running fitness and talent just won't, won't pull through on it. Um, so all that being said, uh, also I want to shout out, you know, Ryan, Ryan Tates. He was the first person to successfully finish this. And then, uh, Matt Zupin after him managed to do it unsupported soloing all of the terrain with no protection, which there's a, this really scary, sketchy five, nine summit block move where it's kind of like no holds compression slab. Um, I don't know how he brought himself to a place that he up climbed and down climbed that solo, um, but he wanted to do it in the unsupported style, um, carrying everything start to finish. And, and he managed to do that. And that that's worthy of recognition as well. So that set the stage, right? Two people had done it. 
um, Ryan in a self-supported style and uh, Matt unsupported. And so I had the privilege of having friends in the area that allowed me to take a supported approach. Um, And originally it was going to be self-supported, but then stuff just changed where uh, Chris, Chris Gorney, he, you know, we want to talk about a high trust, high performance person. Um, didn't, you know, he's, he's a great red rock scrambler. He's put up some great FKT routes and just kind of the, the godfather of scrambling right now in the red rocks area outside of Vegas. He and I had done some fun stuff there together. He's got a fun YouTube channel, mountain high adventures. If people want to tune into that, um, he decided, yeah, I'll come do it. But this feels kind of like a frontier adventure for me. Like this is way bigger than anything I've tried to bite off before. So I might, I might have to pull the plug but I'd really love to give it a go. And I'm like, all right, cool, dude, like jump in. I would like to have somebody with me because of the whole body trust thing, right? Um, originally, I wanted to do it solo, but it was like, this is the year I have to do it. And so I'm going to just change my parameters and l- like, let's go and make this happen. So he jumps in and about four, on day one, we had to do six peaks. The big six is what Ryan Tates likes to call them, uh, which is the push from uh, Langley through Muir and Whitney uh, over Russell and then also getting Williamson and Tyndall. So six 14ers in one day with like 36 miles of mostly off trail, loose talus walking terrain. So just this heinous day. He got to the the bottom of Williamson and he's like, dude, I don't know if I can do this. Like I, maybe I can finish this with you today, but there's no way I'm going to go tomorrow. And quite frankly, I'd rather support you and pace you through the the 45 miles of JMT running, John Muir Trail running tomorrow, and make sure you get through to the final uh, final seven peaks. And like, I'd rather do that. And right, you want to talk about like a trust person, like a person that can be in the middle of suffering and in the middle of dealing with the emotions of needing to drop out of something and say, yeah, but I'm not just going to bail out the next trailhead. I'm going to stay stay the night up here, sleep on the ground in a minimal sleeping bag and shiver bivy, and then run a 50 miler with you tomorrow. So just an amazing guy. Phenomenal. Like can't, can't shout him out enough. So yeah, I, I do the next two, right? So then I have to pull my own head back in and, and be like, all right, I'm now climbing solo as it's starting to get dark. And so climb Williamson pretty quick, pretty flowy, um, felt good. And then full on darkness sets in and it's like, whew. I'm hurting, you know, that headspace thing that I mentioned where my mood changes a lot faster than usual because of the, whether it's the long COVID symptoms or the concussion symptoms, like both of those kind of are similar. So I don't know which it is. And I remember seeing his headlamp down at camp from the point where like I could either turn down or I could climb Tyndall and just being in this deep struggle and being in that weird headspace, um, that I'm you know, not used to myself, like swinging that much and kind of like boiling it all down to this, this simple thing. It's like, okay, I can go rest. I could go sleep right now first. And maybe I still, maybe I still break the record or I can turn and climb Tyndall on those sketchy slabs through the night. And, you know, originally when I did my planning and when I wasn't injured, I was like, oh, that'll be a 20 hour push. And I'll get plenty of sleep and like just start on like the next 24 hour cycle. But I'm standing at the base of this thing at like 22 hours, 10 minutes. Um, So it's like, I'm already way past that time mark. It's like, there goes my sleep window. Like, I'm just going to 
climb this thing, go down, take a quick nap, and then go right back to suffering. Um, it's like, so I'm in the face of that, right? Like that decision, like this is a decision to just not really sleep tonight. And the mantra that popped into my head is keep the dream alive. That was what I did. I was like, let's keep the dream alive. Um, and so climbed Tyndall in the dark through the night, like struggled, but got her done, came down, laid down, took a short nap, um, made, made a quick dehydrated meal, peak refuel. And yeah, woke up the next day and he was there to help pace me through 43 miles of, uh, JMT trail running over three different passes. And then again, laid down, took a really quick nap. Uh, Nathan Longhurst, who, uh, did you guys, you guys had him on for we the had Travis SPS on. list? Had Travis on. Yeah. They, Nathan, they, what they pulled off was so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do want to talk to Nathan at some point. I think, uh, we had a little scheduling snafu because I think he was like on top of a mountain. Like when that we were sounds just to... like Nathan. He's yeah. so difficult to actually get out of the back country and, and lock down for any kind of storytelling. Yeah. So anyways, Nathan had just finished his push. The first ever push of the SPS list. Travis hadn't finished yet because Travis wasn't able to ski as well as Nathan. Um, so Nathan skied a bunch of classic lines to start in the year and got an earlier start and so therefore finished earlier, but then Travis beat his time by running the same peaks that he skied. Um, kind of a cool story for people that don't know about it. Go look up SPS2022.com. I love that I get to work with those two athletes. Um, kind of mentored Nathan through the the Bulgers project. He became the youngest finisher of that list um, and then went on to carry that same process into the, the SPS list and Travis got to hop on and be along for the ride. So anyways, yeah, uh, to bring it back in, Nathan had just finished and part what he had finished on was the final traverse that I needed to do, the Palisades Traverse, which is a ton of fifth class terrain to climb both Middle Palisade and then the entire what's kind of often referred to as the Palisade Traverse, which is from Sill to Thunderbolt that has a ton of you know fifth class full on terrain in it. And it was like, oh, what's the perfect person to have jump in and go with me through that is the person who just did it really efficiently at the end of their SPS project. And he, you know, like I said, he's so easy to convince to go into the mountains and so hard to convince to do anything else um, that he's like, heck yeah, I'll do that. Um, so met, met with him. And then we had to get one peak out of the way in the middle of the night again. And you know, right, part of how I bargained with myself the first night to climb Tyndall was like, okay, it went bad today but tomorrow I'll get to sleep a little bit. And instead the trail miles on the JMT, like my body just was struggling because you know, the hip was swollen, all this different stuff going on, the headspace thing, um, the long COVID symptoms. Like, I'm not sure what it was, but I could not move fast. So it's just like, cool. I'm going to power hike just nonstop and jog when I can. And so just marched most of the day and so again, had to make the decision to keep the dream alive. It's like, all right, have to climb split mountain in the middle of the night. So power nap, split mountain, another super short power nap, and then straight over Mather Pass to start hitting the fifth class terrain of Middle Palisade. And, you know, Nathan was a super strong partner and like kept the pace kind of even. Obviously, I'm thrashed at this point. I have a lot of different issues going on. Um, and... You know, he kind of leads the way and does the route finding to make it more efficient up Middle Palisade because I'd never been on Middle Pal from that side before and he hadn't either. So we were both figuring it out together. Up climate, down climate, and we'd been used to doing that kind of stuff on loose rock, which that's kind of a really rough, loose fifth and fourth class terrain. Both of us were kind of like, that's some of the sketchier stuff we've ever done. But we're, you know, because of the 
whole experience on the, the Bulger's Peaks, which is a lot of chassis um, up climbing and down climbing where you have to stay out of each other's fall zones and just be aware of like how gravity works um, to not you know kill your partner with a rock. So we did well with that. And then the mantra as we're coming across to do the final, there's one final big climb to get up to sill because you drop a bunch of elevation and then have to gain it back to get up to sill. You know, all these are 14ers. So you're planning between, you know, 10,000 feet and uh, 14,000 feet. So you never really go low, um, but it's nice to be down at that. It feels like it's low, but then I have this big, you know, almost 4,000 foot climb one more time to get up to sill. And so it's like, all right, I just can't pop. I can't burn any matches yet. Super conservative. And, you know, I could see Nathan was starting to get worried because the whole premise of why I couldn't sleep the second night is I couldn't mess up the window to climb the the most dangerous terrain, the fifth class terrain from Sill to Thunderbolt in the dark. And there's two parts to that. I know I can push through one night on technical terrain, no problem. And, and and into the second night, like I still can do okay. I can still trust myself. But I know from experience on my previous FKTs that going into the third night, I get really sketchy really fast, like not trustworthy on fifth class terrain. Like, sure, I'll be in the backcountry still on like fairly flat ground or like, you know, Talisy second class. But I knew I could not allow myself to be on that. Nathan knew it too. Um, he does even worse with sleep deprivation than I do. And so he's, I could see he's getting worried and I'm like, nope, can't go yet. Can't go yet. Can't go yet. Just kind of like this gut feeling, um, just from years of experience, I think just kind of like speaking to me like, nope, just don't burn any matches yet. So we tagged the top of Sill and he's like, oh man, we've only got like three hours of daylight left. And Travis and I did this in like three hours, but there's no way we're going to go that fast because we were dialed and the thinking of my brain just flipped like a switch. It's like, Mantra's now not going to die up here. <laughs> and like all of those reserves and like, you know, anything that normally would be saved for like a finishing kick in the final miles. It's like, no, we're burning all those matches right now to be off the technical terrain before dark. And so I just take off on this like fourth class scrambling. And suddenly he's like, dude, if you need to drop me, like, well, I don't know where this came from. Like, I'm struggling. I'm like, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll ease up in a second when the terrain goes to fifth class instead of fourth class. Just keep hanging on. Um, and we just go for it. Just go for broke. And in sections where it's like route findy, he leads the way because he remembers it. And then in sections that aren't, I'm just like romping on the throttle, just all in, like fully committed to cross this traverse as fast as possible. And uh, yeah, get, get the summit of um, Polymonium, do this epic hand over hand repel in nearly empty space um, down that climb this razor ridge across to get to North Pal and then Starlight and finish up and and we knew we're like time is waning the clock like sun's kind of dipping it's like as long as we can be off the down climb of Starlight and to the bottom because that's the one where it's like it's really route finding and if you get a little bit off it's like suddenly really hard fifth class climbing instead of like oh no big deal um and right as the sky is going dark we get to that coal and it's like okay i've done this climb up and down from uh thunderbolt a bunch of times and we know that we're going to be able to protect that final move. Um, him and Travis, when they did their traverse, they discovered that if you tape two trekking poles together and you then uh, attach, you know, tape the uh, 
a quick draw to the top of that. You can just barely reach the bolt on the summit if you're standing on your tiptoes on one of the boulders on the side, and you can clip the top bolt so that you can be protected for the climb. And so we did just that. We clipped the top bolt and we made the climb and tagged the summit. Um, and then we start down the the final like chassis shoot. There's a few more fourth, fifth class moves, um, but we start down the shoot and like it's still pretty dangerous. Like you know, got to be tuned in to not send rock fall and not take a spill. But man, as soon as we stepped out of that gully, that gully descent into into flat ground, and it was still boulder hoppy and like had to be navigated, my brain just goes full mush. Like I hardly know what my name is. Um, I'm like, Nathan, dude, you're on point. Like take the navigation. I'm just going to trust you for this part. Let's go. Cause my, I I'm sideways right now. He's like, okay, man, let's go. Um, and it was, you know how time can just flip into a slow motion where, you know, minutes are an eternity. It's like, if somehow it was that times two, it was like two eternities for every minute. And I swear we were out there for, for years doing that final six mile hike uh, out um, just years and decades, even uh, whole lifetimes were spent getting out to that South Lake trailhead and we do it and we exit. And then the part that gets interesting is again, I'm posed with the question of, do I keep the dream alive? Because the second half of this story is that way back when Ryan Tate's first finished the Norman's 13, I discovered that his splits on foot were just a little bit shy of his splits. Cause he also held the um, human powered California 14ers were just, it was just like a couple hours shy. So I knew if I beat his record time by enough, I was ahead for the California 14ers by bike or human powered, which on foot still meets the rules of, you know, being harder than doing a bike. So it's like, if I have a bike waiting at South Lake, when I finish this South to North push of Norman's, I can break two records in one push by just getting on the bike after crushing Norman's and biking to White Mountain and the 400 plus miles up to Shasta to tag the two final 14ers of California. And so, yeah, I, after this, just eternity, this lifetime of trying to cover six miles to get out um, to the van. It's like, all right, take a short nap, get on the bike, oh, keep man. the dream alive. And that's that's what I did. Set an alarm just after sunrise and uh, get on the bike, bike to the base of White Mountain, climbed it through the night of the next night, ended up taking a nap midday because it got super hot. Like it was like hundred plus degrees. So it's like, okay, I'll sleep in the day for a bit and then just climb all night again because my sleep schedule is obviously all screwed up at this point. Um, so why not just mess it up more? So took my, took my nap finally midday in the heat and then climbed through the night for white mountain and then biked, uh, you know, not to, to, to shorten the story up, the, the wildest day of the bike ride to get to Shasta was a 200 mile, a double century ride through the Reno basin area. And I think for the whole section through Reno for like four plus hours, maybe almost five hours, it was over a hundred degrees. Um, and that, that's what the ride experience was like. So rode a double century that day and that set up kind of one of my A goals for this second half of doing the human powered California, California 14ers is 
the previous record was eight days, eight hours. And I just had this strong drive to be the first one to do it under a week. You know, it's silly how we can get so wrapped up on these arbitrary, like, what is a week? Um, well, but for some reason, somebody calls it a week and I want to go faster than that. So just went crazy hard for this, uh, this push up to Shasta. And again, it comes down to, comes down to the wire where I kind of knew in my head based on, cause Shasta's in my backyard here, right? I'm in Klamath Falls. It's 90 minutes away. I can climb it on any given weekend if the weather's good. So I kind of know how fast it feels kind of like the home mountain. I know how fast I can do different routes on it in various levels of fitness and levels of fatigue. And so I kind of knew like, all right, I need to arrive at the Clear Creek trailhead at this, this particular time. If I'm there by this time, I just go and I go hard and it's going to go sub seven, uh, days. But if I'm here after that time, well, okay, I missed it. I'll go ahead and take a nap and rest up and then enjoy my final climb. Like I'll, I'll make that decision based on what, what moment I come in to the trailhead and I'm just on the wire for the whole bike ride and ended up getting this, uh, slow leak flat and we were doing like NASCAR. Cause, uh, when Chris dropped out, when he, when he quit after his second day of doing the, uh, JMT push with me, he accidentally took all the bike kit with him. Cause he's a, he works at a bike shop is one of his jobs. And so he's like, Oh, I'll bring all the bike stuff. Don't worry about it. But then he left with it. So I have no replacement. like spares with me. Cause it was like, okay, he's covering that. So we're just doing this like NASCAR thing where it's like, I ride five miles hard and stop and we just pump the tire back up as fast as we can break break the nozzle off of it and just go again and so i'm doing like intervals for like 45 miles um and just on the wire the whole time finally a friend like brings a a different tube and i swap it real fast and i'm able to start riding again um and grind up the dirt road climb switched bikes and climbed up the dirt road climb and arrived at the trailhead like five minutes ten minutes ahead of I think it was six o'clock was my cutoff and it was like five forty-five or something. And I was like, okay, got to transition fast, like time to go. And again, climb, <laughs> climb Shasta into the dark and managed to do exactly what was necessary to, uh, come away with seven days, 22 hours for the, or six days, 22 hours, excuse me, six days, 22 hours for the, for the, um, California 14ers push. So yeah, this just this wild week long journey of doing everything I love to do, uh, but volume kind of dialed to eleven because I'm definitely not at a hundred percent. That's yeah, absolutely insane. Uh, just like hearing you tell that story, it's it's so easy to imagine. Um, and you were just on like a a tri bike or something like that. I was on a uh, Canyon Arrow Road, so okay. kind of that hybrid where it's still a road bike, but pretty aerodynamic, uh, geometry. Yeah. It's been, it's been a bike that's treated me well. Any fun, uh, hallucinations? Oh yeah. I almost forgot. So when rewind to when we were in the eternity, um, to do the, the six miles to get out of, uh, the Palisade Traverse, I didn't, I didn't even pick up on it at first, but I kept seeing, and I've done that section enough to know they're not there. Like I've, I've been up and down to do the Palisades enough, but as I'm coming down, I start seeing like symbols and markings and it's like, Oh, that's nice that there's directions on the rock. Um, and then it's like, Oh, that one doesn't make much sense, but that's cool that somebody put something there. And then I start realizing I'm seeing like these alien languages in boxes, uh, on, on rocks, whether they're on the ground and I'm stepping over them or on a boulder, I'm walking past. I'm like, none of those are there. I've been seeing these 
for hours and none of them have been there. <laughs> um, so that was the only extent of it. And it didn't go away after I noticed it either. It's like, even as I'm like cognitively like aware processing this, it's like, I see another one and I, I go, come on brain. I know that's not there. Like I'm telling you it's not there. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. It was pretty intense. <laughs> so when you approach like a big project like this, that is like mainly off trail, uh, what kind of like GPS software and like tools like that do you use? And like, how much time do you spend going over the route, kind of doing reps in your mind? So, oh boy, um, lots of reps. Uh, so I'll usually start by looking at any available GPX data that I can plot onto, say, CalTopo or... Um, Onyx backcountry maps, something like that. And I'll just like load a bunch of files to see how different people do things. Um, you know, in this case, there's neither of the previous record holders kept a GPX file of the whole push. Um, so there was no access to just like a clean line start to finish, which I kind of liked. I like having to put it together. And then I'll read reports of any of the, the cruxes that are relevant to my skill set. Obviously, I'd done the Palisade Traverse, but I had to be pretty well read on that climbing that west side of middle pal not a lot of people climb it because the easier route is easier to access from the the east side and it's also an easier route um so there's very little information i think it's called the far car death shoot well it's called the far car shoot but people call it the death shoot because of the loose fourth and fifth class um so did quite a bit of looking into that one because it's like all right that's kind of the unknown that could actually stop me you know, because both Matt and Ryan talked about getting up the wrong chimney and like having to backtrack and eventually having to find their way, but losing time. I was like, all right, that could really tie me up. That's something I need to try to pay attention to. So I'll kind of go principal hazards next, if you will. I'll get kind of the rough lay of the land, the zoomed out, like what does the whole flow look like? How much terrain can roughly be covered in a given day? Um, what have previous people done in a given day? And then I'll base based on kind of how efforts I've done and efforts they've done and how that speed compares. I'll be like, all right, I can do that or I can do more than that or I can do less than that. Uh, but the way I can make up time is being more efficient here or there. So I'd, I'll do all those and kind of get the, the 30,000 foot flyover. Then I go to principal hazards. Um, and that's, you know, researching on mountain project. That's researching on summit posts. That's researching on just like any place that, you know, maybe it's on their private, uh, blog, um, just reading the beta, boom, boom, boom. And then once I have that, I'll create, you know, in, in a situation where there's no given, uh, GPS line, I'll create my own best guess line. Um, and then I'll load that onto my Coros and I'll overlay that with, within the map on say CalTopo, um, that has all the other lines that people have actually climbed. So I can kind of see, okay, this, this could be it, that could be it, this could be it, or it goes a bunch of ways. Um, and my theoretical line all on the same map there, but then I'll have just the one line on my uh, Coros Vertex 2. Um, so that unless I'm really confused because something isn't lining up how it should, I can just quickly reference the, the watch without stopping to pull anything out. Because obviously with the terrain I'm on, on a trail, you can kind of like pull a phone out and look at your phone on the trail at risk of tripping, but usually you get away with it. But when every single boulder you step on is moving or rolling, you can't really stare at a phone, but you can glance at your watch really fast. Um, so definitely makes a huge difference having a watch that has navigation capabilities. Um, and then that gives me a degree of uh, duplication 
And then I just kind of like have memorized the Cal Topos enough that if both devices failed, um, I would also know my exits well enough and what those those points look like and what would signify that I was at the correct point in the you know general cardinal directions and what those directions would be to be able to go, oh, well, everything has failed anyways. I'll just walk to Shepherd Pass and there's a trail and I just take the right right-hand turn and walk out going downhill and east. And so I'll just kind of have it, have it that way. Um, it would be my, my general setup for how I come to understand a route. And then, you know, that depending on the complexity of the route can be a really big process, you know, with like the Bulgers, it involved hours of phone calls with mountaineers who knew about what linkups were efficient and what weren't. Cause there were just so many different ways people had done things. Yeah. With this one, that's about how this, how, about how it worked. Yeah. I mean, it's so valuable having uh, a watch like that. Um, and I think now, watch technology has advanced so much that like you can do that entire effort on like a single charge, which is nice. Yeah, no, the vertex twos, uh, I mean, not to go too much off about how much I love it, but to go off about how much I love, like an FKT is only verified by the photos you take and having a quality GPS track that shows you actually covered the terrain in question. And it used to be so annoying when I had lesser devices. Um, to always have to try to carry an extra battery pack. And then it's like, oh, now the charge cord's not working right because I tweaked it. So I'm like sitting there like holding it in a weird way, like wasting time trying to charge it. Um, and with the the Vertex too, it's like 140 hours of battery life. Uh, I could do a week long effort and not worry about bringing anything else along. Um, it's pretty sweet. It's, a, it's an awesome time to be playing in this sport for sure. Yeah. Another gear related question for you. Um, I'm always kind of, on the lookout for like the perfect Sierra shoe. And I'm curious uh, what shoes or what shoe you wore uh, this summer. So for both pushes, I used uh, a little, a little known, they're growing fast, but uh, a little known uh, Canadian brand called Norda run. Yep. Um, they make a shoe with a Dyneema upper and, and that, you know, it's like biosourced and, and, and like they, they really care about sustainability and they care about durability. And, and I kind of have gotten to a point, um, where I've been around the block enough and I've been on enough FKTs, uh, obviously having done over a hundred now on, and not on easy trails. Um, I've used other, other brands. Uh, I can think of like one pair that I, in 13 miles on the Oregon's five highest, the first 13 miles across the three sisters traverse. I took a sh- pair of shoes fresh out of the box and in 13 miles had ripped the sole except for like the to- to- toe portion. So luckily I could still get out without being barefoot on the ground, but ripped the entire heel section of the foam completely off the shoe. So it's like 13 miles and now I have garbage. Right. And with the Nordas so far, I haven't been able to destroy a single pair. haven't been able to put a hole in an upper. Um, it's like, I was skeptical at first, like, will it really be that much better? but they've won me over. Um, and then they, they also on the performance end of things, uh, they have a similar ride to like Hoka. So doing the hundred plus miles, you know, the Norman's 13 is 107 miles of the terrain I just described over, you know, three days of pushing the, the foam is high quality and, and a ride like a Hoka. So you feel comfortable with the mileage, but then it does a full rubber bottom, which, you know, adds to the durability. But for the rock climbing moves I was making, I didn't have to bring climbing shoes. Because even though, yeah, you're always going to feel less secure when you have foam between you and the rock, but I've done enough rehearsal laps um, in trail runners on, you know, five, seven, five, six terrain 
then I'm like, yeah, I can make those moves in trail runners. Um, but having that full rubber, that full sticky rubber on the bottom of a trail runner, it makes it that much more, especially when it's a smeary type move with no real hold. You're just kind of stepping on a, a smooth angled rock. It's like, yeah, okay, that's going to stick. Um, so yeah, my Sierra shoe all, all, all summer long was the, the Norder run zero zero one, I think is what they call it. Um, yeah, pretty sweet shoes. People should check them out. Yeah. I'm dying to, to get a pair to review for sure. And yeah, I think they use like Vibram, which is kind of the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, Sweet. So I guess, you know, it is now December uh, and I imagine you're starting to think about uh, some objectives for next year. Um, before we get you out of there, out of here, is there anything you want to tease? Oh, what's coming? Yeah. Well, I did. I did 100 peaks, uh, you know, in 2021. And then I figured I should take a, an off year, right? An easy year. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I think I'm going to take on a 120 peak objective that's, uh, located more in the center of the country this, uh, this upcoming summer. But in the meantime, while I'm finishing up the map building and, and route planning on that over the winter, I think I'm going to take a flight down. I was actually just in the process of booking my flight before I hopped on this, uh, and put the first infinity loop, like the Rainier infinity loop. Um, that's in the journey to 100 film. If people haven't heard of the Rainier infinity loop, it's referenced in there as one of the FKTs I've, I've brought attention to over the course of my crazy journey. Um, yeah, first international infinity loop, uh, in, uh, on Pico de Orizaba in Mexico. So that's gonna, that's gonna go down this, uh, before the turn of the year. Oh man, um, so I didn't, I'm kind of excited. That's, that'll be fun to follow some international FKTs. There's like, man, so many, that like haven't been touched yet. I'm excited to see, uh, see where that takes you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I fell in love. Obviously I've done four different infinity loops. Uh, only one of them I established. The other two had already been established, but I beat a previous time. It was just one of them hadn't been very public. And then obviously the Rainier infinity loop that everybody had known about. Um, so I've done four and it's been on my docket to think, you know, infinity loops are for volcanoes volcanoes are for infinity loops like that's that's a marriage that's just you know it's how chad kellogg would have wanted it um he's the one that thought up the the rainier idea well if that's the case that eventually somebody's going to do one on the tallest volcano in the world um and i guess maybe that's going to be me so i think i'm this will this will probably be a multi-year journey that i continue in my my winter since i get as a school teacher get a couple weeks off each winter um to fly down there and and add them to some some new bigger volcanoes now since we can travel internationally so yeah follow along if you want (laughs) yeah i'm sure many people will um sweet well this has been a ton of fun uh where can people see journey to 100 so journey to 100 is on outside watch it is also on youtube on athletic brewing's uh youtube page um so you can find either of those places whichever you prefer yeah so those would be the places for for journey to 100 Awesome. We'll uh, link both of those in the show notes to this uh, this episode. Sweet, man. Well, uh, have a good rest of your year and, and thanks for coming on. Dude, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I'm glad you picked this thing up and you're running with it. Great job on the interview. Loved oh, it. thanks, man. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Jason for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself. Keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.